listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, thank you so much, Red Church. It is so good to be here. Um, I know people always say that, but honestly, uh, this weekend... Uh, we were here since Thursday, and even meeting the team and walking through the city and hearing stories of what God's doing, uh, I would have these moments where I was kind of like, wait a second, what is that? There's something on my face. And I realized it was like a tear. <laughs> and this happened multiple times, and I'm like, I'm not sad, so that's not it. What's going on? And, but it's also, it's not like an allergy or something, where, you know, <laughs> nothing behind it. Uh, and realizing actually joy, you know, it, it, there's actually been a joy, and I feel like some things that the Spirit of God has been doing in me and my wife, even ministering to us this weekend uh, through part of the team and the city and the culture here and what God's doing. Um, so thank you. I'm grateful to join with you guys tonight. And I do think even, it's a side note from the sermon, but I, I've had the sense this weekend of even that, uh, and there's been some conversations around this, that I think there is a joy that God wants to bring to us, to you as his people, as his church here in this moment, that can actually be a prophetic joy. Like we increasingly find ourselves in a culture marked by cynicism, where there's almost a, a, a sense of a righteousness to suspicion, to being suspicion, to being suspicious of joy or happiness and all, and, and yet there is a gospel joy that doesn't ignore the hard things of the world, but actually is able to encounter us, even the depths of the hardest places, a laughter and a joy in the Lord. And so I just want to encourage you that maybe there's a person here tonight that's been feeling kind of the weight, those kind of dark clouds of cynicism. I believe that the Spirit of God actually wants to part those clouds and break through and shine the light of his face, his countenance, his goodness upon us to bring fresh life and joy wherever you might find yourself tonight. All right, well, you have been in a series the last few weeks on uh, temple and exploring some different themes related to temple. So uh, looking earlier in the series at creation as a temple, that God has designed creation as a home for his indwelling presence. And also looking at the church as a temple, this imagery that God is building up his church like living stones, that us as people are like living stones being built up together by the presence and the power of Christ. Tonight I want to look at humanity as a temple, looking at how God has designed humanity that we might be filled with his indwelling presence, the presence of the living God, both as uh, on a personal level as individuals, on kind of a family or community level, and even on a kind of collective or corporate level that humanity as a whole has been designed to be filled with the indwelling presence of God. Okay, well, one of the most powerful forces known to humanity is the splitting of an atom, right? Uh, splitting of an atom. Uh, this is the science and kind of the backdrop behind um, things like the atomic bomb or nuclear energy. And how uh, splitting the atom works is through a process known as fission. And fission is kind of the opposite of fusion. You think of fusion is taking two things and fusing or uniting them together. Fission is the process of separating or breaking them apart. So how do you separate an atom? Well, the way that scientists do it is they shoot neutrons at the atom, and the atom already has neutrons in it, and when the neutron hits the nucleus of the atom, it adds one more neutron to it, and it creates this process where the, the atom like splits off three atoms, and these three go out and boom, they hit other atoms, and then those ones get one added, and they boom, split off three, 
and exponentially it sets off a chain reaction. And so the one turns into three, turns into nine, turns into 81, and there's an explosive reaction. Well, tonight, I want to look at an even more powerful force, the splitting of a different kind of atom. Right? In Genesis 2, we have the famous story of the creation of Adam and Eve. And the story is marked by a splitting of Eve off from Adam, and it creates a different kind of chain reaction that builds the human race. And as we see this kind of chain reaction, uh, the modern kind of splitting of the atom uh, sets off a reaction that leads ultimately to death, like an explosive reaction that leads to death. But this ancient splitting of the atom that we find in Genesis 2 creates an explosive reaction that leads to life. And it's grounded in this picture of God building the temple of humanity to be a home fit for his indwelling presence. And so tonight, the title for the message tonight is Splitting the Atom. If you would be so bold as to actually turn to the person next to you and tell them it's about to get explosive. <laughs> All right, well, here we go. So we're going to start in Genesis 2 and verse 7. Now, one of the things that's interesting in this passage is that God forms Adam and Eve differently. Uh, not only like that they're created anatomically differently, but that he uses a different method or means to create them. Adam is formed from the ground, and Eve is formed from Adam. So we want to look at tonight at why this difference and why that's significant. So let's start uh, with Adam. In verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of, um, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And now, when we look at this in the Hebrew, it's interesting. It, it actually reads, uh, Then the Lord God formed the Adam from the dust of the Adamah. Right? So starting there, the Adam from the Adamah. The Hebrew word for man or you know, humanity, the Adam, it's actually rooted in the same word of ground. And so there's a sense of that we are earthlings. We are groundlings. We are made from the clay and the dust of earth. So as God starts creating Adam, uh, he begins, God's hands burrow like bulldozers into the clay of earth. And like a child building a sandcastle, God begins to shape and form his muscles and his ligaments and his joints and his shape takes form. Like a Rodin sculpture, the end, Adam, his form is there. And yet, he remains limp and lifeless. He was formed from the earth, but has no life in him yet. And so, like an EMT medic, God bends down on the ground and puts his lips to Adam and whoo, gives him divine CPR. Right? Like he breathes the breath of life, the breath of God's spirit, his ruach, his indwelling presence whoo, into Adam. And Adam's body fills like a balloon and his eyes awaken to behold the face of God. Adam is an icon of heaven and earth. He is created as a temple with body from below and breath from above, formed of soil and spirit. Adam, like us, we, like him, we are, as my friend uh, Jamin Goggin likes to say, we are beloved dust. We are formed from the dust, uh, connected to the stuff of earth, and yet indwelt and sustained by the presence of heaven. 
that Adam is formed from creation, yet sustained by creator. We are earth and clay animated by heavenly breath. Adam is a temple. There's a temple image here in Adam's identity and our identity that we're created to be a place where heaven and earth collide and connect and our life is sustained and animated by that very reality. So Adam is alive, but Adam is alone. So God makes for him a bride. And we're going to look more at the creation of Eve in in a minute, Uh, but the short version here is that God puts Adam to sleep So with kind of like a celestial anesthesia, God puts Adam down, preparing him for divine surgery, and then as the great physician, God pulls flesh and bone from his side, and he forms Eve from his side, and then they awake, and they behold one another, and rejoice in one another, and Adam proclaims the first uh, poetry here in this passage, that she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. They are made with and for one another. So we'll look more at the creation of Eve in a minute, but the thing I want to start with here first is why does God use a different construction plan here? Why a different blueprint? Why why not just use the same method that he used with Adam and create Eve from the dust of the ground as well? Why not kind of make the two individuals and then come and introduce them to each other? I believe there is a profound significance here, and it is that we are all connected. We are all connected. That our humanity is intertwined. Our lives are woven together. There is an organic unity to the human race. That we are made not only for one another, uh, but from one another. For similarly to how Eve will be pulled from Adam, after that their children will be pulled from Eve, and their children will be pulled from them. And the reality is for all of us, our lives arise from prior union. At one level, our lives arise from the union of our parents, right? And yet, on another level, if we kind of keep tracing back up the family tree or down the family tree, back to the roots, there is a sense that uh, Adam is like this beginning source from which our lives all arise, that our humanity is connected and intertwined as the human race. Paul observes this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, uh, For as woman came from man, so also man is born from woman. Uh, that every baby boy spends the first nine months in hotel mama, right? And every uh, baby girl still comes from the seed of big papa. There is an interconnection and interdependence. And Paul observes this in, the, in that same passage. He says the significance of this is that woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. We are, not inter, we are not independent creatures, but interdependent creatures. We are made with and for and even from one another. Our lives are intertwined. Both as man and woman and also in the bigger picture within the human social body, the human race, we need each other to exist, literally. If it were not for this prior union, we would not have come into the world, come to existence. So I think we can think of Adam as almost like this original batch of Play-Doh. And and from him, Eve gets pulled and their kids, and and almost like this ever-expanding batch that grows throughout history as the human race grows and builds. There's an old proverb that the whole tree is contained within the seed. And similarly, the whole human race, as you hear, is, is contained within the Adam. And for Paul, 
he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 11 that since Adam came from God, he says ultimately that everything comes from God. The whole human social body. The idea here is that there is a primordial union to the human race. And I think we get a better picture of this if we kind of imagine, you can imagine maybe a contrasting alternative creation story. Let's say another, imagine with me another creation story where God creates Jimmy and Jenny. And let's say he creates Jimmy on the island of Fiji and Jenny on the island of Hawaii, right? And uh, Jimmy he makes from uh, tree bark and sand. Uh, Jenny he forms from different materials, from grass and coconut shells or something. And <laughs> eventually he gets a canoe and he kind of, God paddles them together and he introduces them to one another and they fall in love, that's great. That would be a story of primordial individualism. One in which we are each made of different stuff from different places. We have an independent, autonomous identity and existence apart from one another. There's no inherent connection between us. This is sort of the men are from Mars, women are from Venus narrative, right? Only here it's men are from Fiji, women are from Hawaii, right? But this sense that there's nothing original that kind of binds us together in our history. This would be an appropriate creation story for my home country, like kind of American individualism, right? Kind of the ideology of where I come from and probably here in, in Australia too, kind of Western culture, we tend to start with the individual and think that we exist kind of on our own before family or tradition or culture or history. We kind of, we are the starting point of our own identity and existence. And yet the biblical narrative confronts that and gives us this picture that I actually find quite compelling and beautiful, that our lives are intertwined we arise from prior union. Our existence is bound up within the communion of the human social body as a whole. This means that you are connected to an 89-year-old Chinese grandmother in Beijing, to a 24-year-old migrant worker in Nigeria. You are connected to my nine-year-old daughter in the United States. Our lives uh, are inter- within the social body of humanity. There is a foundational unity that God has designed for the human race as this temple. And if that is true, then I would suggest to you that the enemy's goal is fragmentation. It's actually to shatter the temple of humanity, right? And if my Facebook feed is any sign of things, he's winning, right? Like, I actually think we can think of Facebook as a pretty compelling picture of uh, kind of an image or an example of the enemy's strategy, which is probably to isolate, to polarize, and to demonize. Uh, let me explain what I mean. That, that first, I believe, if I were the enemy of God's temple purposes for humanity, my first strategy would be to isolate us from one another into kind of echo chambers uh, that confirm our own biases. And similarly, on uh, Facebook as an example, uh, uses algorithms to actually protect us often from differing opinions and perspectives and things and to surround us with those who already agree with us. I found this recently in, in kind of the last election in America and all. And suddenly I found like, oh man, a lot of my, some friends and family members and all, like I, I don't see them, I don't hear from them on Facebook anymore. They must have gotten off. And then I would go and kind of search their name and find their page and go, oh no, they don't get off. They're posting a ton. Just I'm being protected from seeing it because we tend to not see eye to eye on certain issues, right? I think the enemy's first strategy would be to isolate us from one another into echo chambers that confirm our own biases. And after doing that, I think the enemy's strategy would next be to polarize us against one another. And we see this as well. Um, 
There is a tendency in online communication to depersonalize the person on the other side of the keyboard. Right? They've actually found that uh, you know, in social interaction, we tend to use more our right brain, which is more relationally wired. But in online interaction, uh, it taps more into our left brain, which tends to see uh, the things we're interacting with as tasks. Or uh, you know, we use our left brain more for tasks and for order. And so we can tend to treat those on the other side of the keyboard as those two, as a task to be accomplished rather than a person to be related to. As someone to impose the order that we want to see in the world upon rather than as someone to connect to as a fellow human being. And if I were the enemy, I would first isolate and then polarize and then also me demonize. That we begin to see this other person uh, not as just a person to disagree with, but an enemy to be destroyed. We see this today as well, that Facebook, in a sense, is kind of an icon of hell, right? Is a display of kind of the social breakdown of humanity that is much bigger than Facebook, that is actually just the social reality of the world that we live in today, of a fragmented, fractured, and divided humanity. In the early church, uh, this was actually a dominant theme in the theology of the early church, that God has created humanity to bear the image of God, not only as individuals, but collectively, that the human social body was designed that in communion with one another, that we would reflect and display the glory of God into the world. And yet, for the early church, a major theme of the very nature of sin is to fragment and fracture and divide the human social body. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, used this image that it's almost like uh, we were created with this collective vision in mind that humanity was like um, this unified body, kind of like a china doll, right? That is both beautiful, has this precious beauty to it, and yet it's a fragile one. And the effect of sin, he said, is in essence uh, to take the human social body and throw it to the ground and shatter us into thousands of fragmented shards and pieces. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that God is restoring the unity that we lost in Adam. That God is in Christ. Jesus is taking the shattered shards and pieces of our humanity and bringing them back together and uniting and restoring them in and through himself. And particularly in us as his church, that is God's vision in and through the church is actually to unite us not only to Jesus, but to one another, and to rebuild this temple of humanity as a people filled with his indwelling presence, the very purpose that we were made for. That we are invited, God restores us in order that we might resist the temptations to isolate and polarize and demonize. We'd be resistors to that, and we would rebuild. We'd be rebuilders who rebuild together one another, rebuild the unity and communion that we are made for with one another the people of God. The church is to be a microcosm of this temple purpose of God for humanity. All right, well, let's move forward in the story. Uh, next, uh, we come to Genesis 2. This is verse 21 to 23. If you have your Bible, I want to turn there. And we come now to the creation of Eve, where it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. All right, well, we see here a strange detail that I kind of passed over earlier. 
And that detail is that uh, God kind of takes a rib out of Adam's side. That's kind of a strange image, right? Like, I've got this buddy Savdi uh, in Cambodia. He's kind of this young Cambodian leader in his early 20s, and uh, he really wants to get married. So he tells me he's running around Phnom Penh all the time going, who has my rib? Who has my my rib? Who took my rib? Right? It's kind of a funny image. Um, But the word here that often gets translated rib, in in Hebrew, it's selah. And it's interesting. This word selah, it shows up over 40 times in the Old Testament. And every other time, this is the only place that it gets translated rib, every other time it means side, like the side of something. And uh, I think it's, you know, why, why does it often get translated rib? Well, I think it's a funny image kind of, right? It's a strange picture that God's kind of like slicing Adam down the side like a cucumber. Right? Uh, and yet, that's kind of the sense in the original, and uh, a lot of Jewish translations will interpret it as side. I think it's interesting now to kind of read it and look at it through that, with that lens, that image of side in place. If so, it reads this way. It says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's sides and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the side he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So the picture here is less like God is taking a brick out of one building and then bringing in a whole bunch of other materials to kind of build up around it, uh, like the brick, like the rib, right? And it's more like God is uh, slicing a home down the side and forming it into a duplex. Two complementary halves made with and for one another. God is the great architect who removes a wall alongside Adam and makes a shared wall where the two uh, are compatibly crafted with and for one another. Now here's another piece that I think is even more interesting. Uh, This word selah, when it shows up like those 40 other times in the Old Testament, guess where virtually all of them are? I think it's about 38 out of those 40 times. What's that? Psalms. No, that's a great question. Okay, it does sound like that. All right, so Selah, that's a word that's a great, great, great guess. Great guess. Uh, that's a different word. Uh, <laughs> it's a really good guess. Uh, actually, I think people, they're, they're unsure exactly what that word Selah means. That's a really good guess. Uh, but this word, it's actually a temple image. It's 38 out of 40 times. It shows up in relation to the temple. And so it describes the two halves of the holy things in the temple, the two halves, the two sides of the Ark of the Covenant, the two sides of the altar upon which the sacrifices are made, the two sides of the most holy place, the two sides of, or or the sides uh, of the tabernacle, and then ultimately uh, when the temple was built, the side chambers of the temple itself. What's the significance here? I think it would have been obvious for the early Jewish readers, the original audience, that Adam and Eve are being crafted together as two halves of a temple, designed that they can come together to bear the indwelling presence of God into the world. That we are together a temple. Adam and Eve are crafted as these two halves of a temple. When we think of the temple in the Old Testament, part of the significance was it was not only a home for the indwelling presence of God, but that God's life-giving presence would go forth from there and bring his abundance, his fruitfulness, his life-giving power into the land. That the crops would bloom, that lives would flourish, that people would be healthy, that there would be abundance in the land as a whole. And similarly here, when Adam and Eve, when the two halves of the temple come together, 
This is how the temple gets built. How humanity grows. How the human social body is constructed and built through this union where the one is pulled into two and as the two come back to become one, uh, through their union, the human social body grows to fill the earth. The one flesh union of a family is designed to display in miniature the purpose behind the universe, which is to be filled with the life of God. Um, it's interesting, this, uh, in Jewish thought, they often saw this story as also uh, trying to, you know, attempting to explain some of the backdrop behind romantic attraction uh, in our culture, like why over half of our pop songs are about romance, why our movies and themes are constantly flooded with this theme. And uh, the idea in these kind of early Jewish commentators was that um, the two long to become one because it's from one that the two originally became. That our lives arise from prior union and we long for a return to union and that ultimately this is designed to point us to a deeper reality that you and I, we were made for union. Because the, the point is not that, hey, you have to get married or have sex or anything like that to have a meaningful existence. That's not it. That we see very clearly in, uh, particularly in the New Testament, the Bible as a whole, that uh, married and single are equally valid vocations. Are equal. One's not lesser uh, or more. Sometimes our culture can communicate, like, if you're single or if you're on your own, that's like less, that, that is not true that, that that's anything lesser. And actually, in actuality, Jesus was single. Paul was single. If you're in good company, right? Uh, like, and some passages would say that's even a more exalted because your, your vocation is the ability to give your life uh, fully to the kingdom at a different level. So there's nothing lesser than that. And yet there is this picture that what we see is that we have been created for union. That ultimately this is a signpost of the deep reality that we were made for union with God and union with one another and for the life that, union, that God brings in us and through us and the power and presence of his spirit into the world. <clears throat> another uh, kind of side note, or not a side note, another uh, emphasis here, what does it mean that humanity is made to be a temple? That means that humanity is made to be holy, that we are made to be holy. And holiness is kind of a, uh, naughty word today, right? Like it has some negative associations in our culture. So we hear the word holiness, and we tend to think of kind of like smug or self-righteous or better than you and uh, those kind of associations. But that's really not what holiness means. Uh, in the biblical vision, holiness is humanness. Right? We are set apart from sin in order to be for the life of the world. Right? That <clears throat> Jesus is holy, and he lives, uh, oh, not yet, thank you. <laughs> Jesus is holy, and he lives the most fully human existence in the history of the world. And I think part of our misconception is the sense that, well, to sin is human, like to err is human, we all make mistakes. We're not talking about like mistakes here, we're talking about willful rebellion or disobedience or distancing ourselves from God. And the reality is that sin makes us less human, not more. In the biblical vision, sin attacks and degrades our humanity. It wants to corrupt and tear us down and distort the kind of existence that we were made for. And the beauty that we find in Christ is that holiness actually creates a more human experience indwelt by the presence and the power of God that we were created for. 
sometimes I wonder if one of the reasons we don't walk in the presence and the power of God more is the lack of holiness in pursuing holiness in our lives. The, the pursuit of holiness is ultimately pursuing greater humanness. I love how we see in Jesus when he comes out of the wilderness, when he's been tempted and kind of tested, and it reveals what's in his heart, that he has ultimate devotion to God and to us above his own self. And as he comes out uh, displaying this holy obedience to God, God's number one in his life, he steps out of the wilderness, and this is where his ministry begins, and the presence and the power of the kingdom is unleashed, and it means that the sick are healed, and the demons are cast out, and the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed in power. And I believe Jesus desires that for us, as well as he says, greater things will you, my people, do. And again, I wonder if sometimes the the presence and the power, we've got this temple presence of God's spirit going out into the earth, if at times, if that can be blocked because of a lack of pursuing holiness, that we allow sin to invade. I had this image, uh, we were praying this morning before the service, and it was this picture of a, like a big pipe, and it was kind of hanging over uh, the sanctuary here, and it was this pipe with a big boulder in it, and there was water kind of coming out and, you know, coming out the sides, and then seeing this hand, this big hand, like the hand of God, come and pull the boulder out, and just this flood of rushing water of God's presence flooding our lives as his people. And I believe holiness, the pursuit of holiness, is seeking to identify those boulders, right, in our own lives personally and together as the church, as the body of Christ, that we would help each other pursue intimacy in the life of God, being a people who are set apart to be devoted for his presence and to bear his life into the world. The reality is that we are consecrated by God to be an outpost of his life in a world of death. And that holiness is a vision for becoming more human, of our lives pervaded by the presence of God. All right, well, this brings me to the third point here, which is this calling to kind of be holy. Uh, In the first sermon of the series, Mark shared from 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2.5. And here Peter talks about the church as a living temple being built like, like living stones put together in Christ. And just before this, in 1 Peter 1.16, he launches into it, uh, quoting the Old Testament, where, he, where God says, Be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. And if we go back into the Old Testament where that comes from, it's actually coming from the book of Leviticus and its temple imagery, surrounded by the priesthood and the sacrificial system and all. And God says, be holy, saying refrain from idolatry, refrain from injustice, refrain from sexual immorality, uh, and be set apart to be a people marked by worship instead of idolatry, marked by uh, justice instead of injustice, marked by uh, sexual wholeness rather than sexual immorality in our lives before God. Well, what does that look like for us today as we seek to live into this temple vision that God has, us, has for us as his people? Well, I have three things that come to mind as examples. The, the first thing, I think a way to pursue holiness is to treat your body like a temple. Right? And so this is kind of the personal dimension. And in many ways, this is probably not a hard one for us today. There are a lot of ways that we 
do in our culture seek to treat our bodies like a temple? So uh, eat organic and do yoga, and, and um, those are not bad things. Those are good things. I do uh, some of them sometimes, and sometimes I don't feel that great when I don't, you know. Uh, so we do have, at times, even an obsession in our culture with kind of uh, physical health and taking care of our bodies and all, and, uh, and it's a good thing to care for our bodies like a temple. It's a place that God has given us to steward and to care for. Um, and yet, on an even deeper level, I think it points us to something deeper here. Last week's sermon was how our inputs determine our outputs. That whatever we fill our hearts with will overflow from us. And so a question tonight, I believe, is what are you filling your temple with? What are you placing at the center of your heart, object of your devotion, your affection? That could be a, a person, and maybe it's that romantic relationship or something, that, that person has become more important than God. Maybe it's become how you spend your time. The, the, I, I like watching Netflix. Maybe it's the Netflix addiction or obsession or just the, the things that crowd our attention, our time, our devotion. I loved uh, this vision that God has placed on Red Church and other churches uh, to step into the season of Lent as a season of fasting and prayer. That we would actually devote ourselves to uh, experiencing the absence, as was said in that video, that we might taste of the presence. Right? That we might create space in our lives to hunger for God as a temple to long for the presence that we need to fill us as a people on that personal level. All right, well, if a first thing here is to treat your body like a temple, uh, second I say treat her body like a temple or his body a temple, right? And this gets us out of the realm of the personal into kind of the family or the community. Uh, the, as I mentioned, the, kind of the context here in Genesis 2 is part of it's like romance and the family and all that, like Adam and Eve made with and for one another, the first wedding ceremony, the first uh, marriage and all that. And when it comes to romance and all in our culture, <clears throat> I think recognizing that this is holy ground and whether you're uh, married and how you treat your spouse or whether you're single, maybe you're dating and how you look to the other person, uh, that are you looking to the other for self-gratification or for self-giving right? as someone to give uh, our lives to? And the one thing I think is really interesting in this passage is this is where the language and imagery of one flesh comes from. At the end of this passage, God says, uh, for this reason, the two uh, will come together, will be married essentially, and, and will become one flesh. And so this is kind of the first wedding ceremony, the backdrop for the idea of uh, how marriage works or functions in the Bible. And the, I, I, one thing I think is really interesting in here is that the language of one flesh is not, is not only used for the married couple, but for the children who come into the world through their union. That kids becoming like your flesh and blood. So that language shows up later throughout the biblical story, that your, your children, your lineage, those who come after you are like your own flesh and blood. So I think one of the questions when we think about becoming a temple people is, do I look to that romantic other as someone to just kind of get from? Or in the biblical context, do I look to them as someone to commit to in covenant, to create that stable foundation for the potential of bringing new life into the world? the children and the flesh and blood that may arise from that union, the generations that may come out of our togetherness into the life of the world. And 
as I mentioned earlier, for many of us who are, are single and, are, and maybe there's even a calling uh, on our lives, a kingdom calling to devote our lives to the kingdom, and that is as valid, if not more, as, as, as married life and all, right? And if that's your calling uh, is singleness as well, I, I think this still speaks to us in our most intimate relationships with friends and with our kind of most intimate community of people around us. Do we look to them for what we can just kind of get, or do we look to them as people to give to and invest in and build up, to pour out our lives for, to see the holy calling that God has given us, to be a temple, not only personally, but together as this intimate community of people, as family. And the third, uh, not only treat your body like a temple, treat her or his body like a temple, but to treat the church body like a temple. And this comes into this bigger picture that God is at work in Christ rebuilding the temple purpose of humanity to be a home fit for his indwelling presence. And it raises the question, do we see one another as holy space? Are, are we here just to go, what can I get out of this? Or do we, are we here to go, how do we help build one another up in the life of Christ and his gospel to pursue being a people who are indwelt by the holy presence of God? Are we building here a microcosm of God's vision for humanity and how we treat and build up one another? It starts here, building each other up into the health and the wholeness of the gospel. I think this contrasts with some times today we look at the church and we want to kind of leverage the church to just kind of fix things that are messed up out there. And I do believe it's true that God, uh, he, he empowers his people to actually be a source of life and justice and flourishing in the world. And yet, the church's primary mission, I would suggest, is not so much to fix the world as it is to be the church, to be an alternative community in the midst of the empire, a people of the kingdom who embody and display the love of Christ and the values of the gospel and the, the presence of Christ as king in our collective life together. In this respect, the church is not so much, uh, not only have a mission, but the church is a mission. We are a people receiving the mission of God and being formed together as this new humanity for God's temple purposes in the world. All right, well, in conclusion, uh, to kind of wrap up here, uh, I think the beauty of the gospel is that the church is a new Eve. Right, that we as the church are a new Eve. And here's what I mean by that. Augustine, the early church father, saw in this Genesis 2 creation story of Adam and Eve a foreshadowing, a prophetic pointer and signpost of Christ and the church. And so similar to how God puts Adam to sleep, pulls flesh and bone from his side, and forms for him a bride, and they rise together and look upon one another and rejoice in one another in their life together, so similarly, at the cross, God puts his son, Jesus, to sleep. And as the spear pierces his side, the father pulls flesh and bone from his side and forms for him the church as a bride. We are a people formed by the body broken, the blood shed, the life given of Christ our King. And as Christ and the church arise in the power of Christ's resurrection and he looks upon us as his people. Jesus rejoices over us as his bride as Adam rejoiced over Eve so long ago and Christ sings over us as his people that we are now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. That we should be called church. 
for we were taken from Christ. Christ loves his church. He is making us a holy space where our lives personally and as families and intimate community and as the church body as a whole, that we are being made as a people fit for the indwelling presence of the living God. I love Ephesians 2 where Paul, with this in mind, he says that we as the church, we are be, we've been brought into the family of God, that we are like the household of God. And he goes on right after to describe this using temple imagery, saying that Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God is building us up as a church, a living temple in the presence and power of Jesus' spirit as the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, to be a people who bear the life-giving power and presence of Jesus, our King, together with him into his world. That the church as a temple is the hope of the world. It's a for, the for, it's, it is a foreshadowing of the future of the new creation flooded with God's involving presence, of humanity's destiny restored to be a people marked by the presence of the living God. And so we're going to come to communion here in a moment as we come to receive the body broken and the blood shed of Christ given in the bread and the wine. We come to Christ, our risen King, who has given his life, that we might be formed as his people, that he is the chief cornerstone in whom God is building us up upon his foundation, that we might build our lives, as we sang earlier, upon his love, as his foundation in which we are becoming the temple people of God. If the worship team wants to come forward, uh, if you are in need of prayer tonight, there are going to be people on each of the sides here along the walls who would love to pray for you. And maybe there's something like one of those rocks or boulders that you, you, maybe the Holy Spirit of God, I just pray that even now you would surface if there are any areas of conviction, God, of uh, kind of blockages or things, distractions, or even work of the enemy. Maybe it's not even things that we're, we're, we've done or are doing, and maybe it's lies of the enemy or things that are kind of blocking and impeding just the full rushing in, God, a, a deeper experience, movement of your presence and your power, your temple presence, God, your spirit in our lives as your people. God, I pray that even now you would surface those areas in our hearts, and, and if that's you, that you would feel the courage and the freedom to go forward and, and pray with someone about that, that we would love to pray for you and to bring those together before Jesus. Uh, would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you are so good. I thank you that you have given your life, your body broken, your blood given, in order that we might be formed as your church, God. As a temple people filled with your indwelling presence and power. God, thank you that you've designed humanity to be a, a, a vehicle of your indwelling presence, God. And God, we lament the power of sin that we see at work in our world all around us, God, that fractures and fragments and divides and destroys and yet we cling to and claim that reality, God, that we are all connected. God. We are connected to the human social body, and I pray that we would resist the tendencies of sin to isolate and polarize and demonize, God, and that we would, together as the church, that we would bear, uh, become a different kind of people, that we would be together a temple. God. That we would be together a people, God, who 
long to pursue holiness, not our own strength and moralistic or legalistic, trying to make ourselves better or whatever, God, but rather, God, a people who respond to the extravagant pursuing love that you have shown us in Christ as you have come relentlessly for us, God, that we would uh, stop running and receive, God. That it's not so much that we'd go, try and go out to find you so much as we would stop running, God, and lay bare where we're really at before you, the God who has come for us in Christ. Jesus, I pray that you would build us up, that you would build up Red Church here in Melbourne and other churches in the area, God, to be temples of your living presence, God, and that your presence and your power would go forth bringing healing and restoration into the surrounding area, God, for the display of your glory in the world. It's in the name of Christ and for your glory, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.